Roberto as well, who of course is now not with us this morning, but thankful for these men who were able to actually uh, come together and, and uh, join with us um, in ministering the Word. And so I'm grateful for that, very thankful for the Lord's mercy and grace in that. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. We are continuing our study through the book of Colossians. And we'll begin in verse 15 and read through verse 20, as we've done now for several weeks. The scripture says, speaking, of course, of our Lord Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we pause these few moments to thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God together, to into the truth of your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, for your provision you've made on our behalf. We thank you for the privilege it is to stand this day to proclaim the truth of your word and the revealed Christ. I pray that every soul that is gathered here this day, that we might have a tent of hearts to your truth, that we would have eyes that are able to see and ears that are able to hear and hearts to receive, minds to understand the truth of your word that is before us as Jesus is being revealed through its blessed pages. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to gather together as we do this day. I pray that we might truly edify one another in the truth of your word and through the teaching of your word, but as well as you would minister to us through each other as your body. We thank you for every soul gathered here today. And as well for those, Lord, we've mentioned many folks that are traveling, many who are away, those who are sick, recovering from surgery. Lord, we just pray your blessing upon them. And Lord, for a speedy recovery and as well that you'd bring them safely back together with us as your body. Uh, together. Lord, we thank you also for, uh, Lord, the, the many blessings and for health. We thank you for healing and, Lord, for those as well who've been able to proclaim the truth of your word to fill in the spot where we've been absent. We thank you for that, Lord, for your provision in this manner. And, Lord, we just ask that in all things today as we've gathered, may we do so with hearts that are filled with praise unto you because you are good and because you are God and you alone deserve our submission, our service, our praise, our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Several weeks ago, uh, we began this study of Paul's declaration and explanation of how our Lord Jesus is unique through this portion of Colossians. We've now been in Colossians for months, as you're aware, but yet in this particular portion of the text, we've discovered how Paul is explaining the uniqueness of Christ. And, and he does so, obviously, in a brief manner, for the uniqueness of Christ is an inexhaustible subject in reality. None of us could ever fully grasp or comprehend how unique our Lord is and the truth of his uniqueness in being the eternal God. But yet we find that Paul does give us some description of how Jesus is unique within this text, especially in light of his teaching to the Colossians, his epistle to the Colossians. You have to remember that Paul had never met this church. He had never personally gathered with them, and he goes on to explain that later in the letter. But yet, he, this is not a church that he had established, and yet he had a heart and desire to see this church flourish in the truth of Christ and being rooted and grounded as he would one of the churches which he was used to begin or to start or to, find, to found. And so we see that, that 
in this description of Jesus as being unique, Paul is uh, obviously combating the infiltration into the church of of Gnosticism as it was beginning to infiltrate the church, and he is beginning to uh, expound upon several things concerning Jesus and the exclusivity of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, and of course, therefore, the uniqueness of Christ as we have been examining over the past several weeks. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, "...giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light." And the word, or the statement, the verb phrase here, hath made us meet, is in reference to uh, having made us to be accepted, if you will, or having to qualify us, that Jesus is one who has qualified us before the Father. The next two verses, verses 13 and 14, explain how the Father has made us meet or qualified us. He says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So as we've discovered over the past Paul explains within the following verses what it was that was required or what was required in one to qualify us. We've looked at the fact he has qualified us, how he has qualified us as verses 13 and 14, and then what was required in one to be able to qualify us. And within these verses, verses 15 through 20, Paul briefly describes some of the many things which set Jesus Christ apart in being unique. I began this portion of our study weeks ago providing you with the definition of what it means to be unique. The adjective unique is defined as existing as the only one or as the sole example, single, solitary, in type or characteristics, having no like or equal, unparalleled, incomparable. And rightly so, when Paul begins his description of how Jesus is unique, he does so by addressing the foundational truth of what makes Jesus unique, which is this truth, that Jesus Christ is unique in his being. And several weeks back, we looked at this in verse 15 where we read, who Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. There is none other like Jesus Christ. He is not only the image of the invisible God, but also the very fullness of the Godhead bodily. In chapter 1.9, we're told, For it pleased the Father, 119, I'm sorry, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Then chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So again, we saw how that Paul begins in explaining the uniqueness of Christ with this, again, foundational truth that Jesus Christ is unique in his person. He is unique in his being, and that's what makes everything else about him unique and all that he has accomplished unique because of who he is. And he is the very image of visible God. And what is being stated there, of course, is that, and you have to understand what Paul is inferring, and it's that without the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no relatable experience with God, no relation to God. We could not see God. We could not experience him. But yet, because of Christ being manifested in uniqueness, the very Son of God being manifested in the flesh, we now are able to relate to God because He is related to us in human form. Remember, Jesus humbled Himself in the Carmen Christi, we're told, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that He has humbled Himself, coming in the form of a servant, in the of sinful flesh, not sinful flesh, but the same likeness of that sinful flesh, 
So God is related to us through his son. And again, this, this helps us to understand the significance of the person of Christ and how we are to magnify him and that we are to exalt him and that we are to be focused on him because it is Christ who is the mediator between God and man. Christ who is the only connection that exists. John 14, Jesus said, if you remember, verse uh, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so he is connection to the Father. Otherwise, we would have no relationship with God the Father. Now you may question and stop and ponder and say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet been manifested, and the children of Israel had a relationship with God. But let's remember, that Old Covenant was the seed form of the New Covenant, and the Old Covenant only existed and was a reality because of the truth of the New Covenant, which the Old Covenant shadowed the new in Christ is the, is the uh, mediator of the new covenant. He is the substance of that new covenant. And so the only relationship that existed as Romans 3, 24, 25, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11 clearly tells us that it's because of Christ and he being the propitiation for our sins, the atoning victim of our sins or for our sins, that because of this, we they had a relationship with God the Father, and now we have a relationship with God the Father because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is unique in his person, in his being, the very image of the invisible God. He is that which now gives us a connection to God the Father. Second, we saw that Jesus Christ is unique in his authority. Verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And for him. I mentioned a few weeks back that we can summarize the truth of this verse by making this simple statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's really what's being stated here. He is above all. He is, he is sovereign over all. And the scriptures testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is unique in his authority. In John 1, 3, we're told, all things were created or were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But to us... There is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Hebrews 1, 2. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And so Jesus Christ is the creator. We see that clearly stated again in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, is the name that you, is translated there for us. And Elohim is plural in number. So you see the Godhead present. And we see that as well. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, the Scripture says. Then all of these verses and many more we understand clearly teach to, to us that Jesus Christ is the Creator. He's the one by whom all things were created. He is the Word of God. Remember that divine expression of God to us, to man. And so it's by Him. I told you. Uh, a few weeks back, God, the author, the Father is the author or architect of creation. Jesus Christ is the one who implemented the plan of God, and it's through the Spirit of God that it was then organized and brought into order. And, and so it is within the recreative work of God as well. In redemption, God the Father is the author of His eternal plan and purpose in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who implements that eternal redemptive purpose of God, 
and the Spirit of God is the one who brings it personal and puts it in order within our lives. And so you see that God had present both in creation and in recreation, in God's redemptive work. Paul stated, All things in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that all these things are because of Christ. Thrones deals, with, of course, with all kingdoms. Dominions has to do with all lordships. Principalities is all rulers. And powers refers to all authority. Jesus Christ, therefore, is unique in his authority. While kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, there is one kingdom that is eternal. And that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Revelation eleven sixteen and 17, we read, And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And so over the last several weeks, we have seen these manners in which Paul describes to us the uniqueness of Christ. And this morning we continue to examine this passage in which we see Paul progresses in his explanation of how Jesus is unique in every way. And within verses 17 and 18 specifically, we discover how Paul continues to explain this truth in that he describes that Jesus Christ is unique in his status. Look at verses 17 and 18 again with me this morning. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and by him, Jesus, all things consist. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church, who Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. Although Paul did not use the term status here, obviously, in this verse, he declares within these two verses that Jesus Christ is truly unique in his status. The noun status simply means standing or rank or level. And as I have previously declared to you regarding the uniqueness of Jesus in his person or being, the person of Jesus is eternal. And it is this truth that Paul reiterates first in this portion of the epistle. It's interesting, as I shared with you a moment ago, when Paul begins to describe the uniqueness of Christ in this epistle, he begins by the person of Christ, how he is unique in his being, is the very image of the invisible God. This is who he is. This is how he has been manifested. And so Paul begins to describe the uniqueness of our Savior by beginning with the person of Christ. And notice now, in dealing with his status, he begins with the eternality of Jesus, because he says in verse 17, the beginning of the verse, and he is before all things. Jesus holds an eternal status. And this is important for so many reasons. And especially in light of the Gnosticism that was beginning to be formed and infiltrate the church at Colossae. Jesus Christ is not, hear me closely please, he is not a created being. And even though many people falsely claim, and there are cults that exist upon the false premise that he is a created being, he is not. And this is part of the truth which Paul declares in the first statement he makes in verse 17. He is before all things. We find other passages of Scripture which clearly describe and detail this, even, even in, in a greater a detailed manner, and just to reference a few, not all of them by any means, but in John eight fifty eight, remember whenever Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and they are questioning him, and they are, are uh, questioning his, his lordship in reality, that, that he 
claiming he, he, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not God in the flesh, manifested as, a, of course, being the Son of God. And yet in John eight fifty eight, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. John 17, 1 through 5. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thee, son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now notice verse 5. He says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh in the fullness of time, but he had always been with the Father, then manifested in the flesh, and now is seated with the Father in a glorified flesh. Now this is significant on, on, for so many reasons, obviously in relation to God's eternal redemptive purpose, our personal salvation, resting and trusting in the provision of God, which was made by Jesus Christ. Understand something. Before Jesus was manifested in the flesh, he was not flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. But now, having been manifested in the flesh, he is now eternally with the Father, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, with God the Father, in a glory. We have no association with God other than fallen man. Those whom God's, condemn, or God's judgment and wrath was set upon. But because Christ was manifested in the flesh, God identified with sinful man in the likeness of sinful flesh through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended unto the Father and is seated at the right hand of God the Father in a glorified body that is eternal. He will forever now identify with us in a glorified body, and one day, as you are aware, for those who know Christ, we will be resurrected to be with the Lord in also a glorified body as that of our Lord Jesus Christ. B, we see also Jesus holds a sovereign status. Notice Paul begins by saying he is eternal, the status of the eternality of Jesus. He is not a created being. He is manifested in the flesh, but is eternal, has always been with God the Father. But then he says Jesus holds a sovereign status. Look at verse 17. He goes on to say, and by him, by Jesus, all things consist. Everything that is only is because Jesus is Lord, because of who he is. The verb consist means held together. As John declared in his gospel account, the writer of Hebrews also explained, all that is can only be because of the eternal power and eternal person of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, by the Word, and without him the Word was not anything made that was made. 
Again, we know who the Word is, of course, by verse 14, clearly defining that. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word has always been. Jesus has always been, but yet He became flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. As Paul explained in Colossians 1.17, it's not only that all things in creation were created by the Word of God, by our Lord Jesus Christ, but also that it is and continues to be or is held together by the Word of the power of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now he goes on to say, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Within previous verses of this epistle, that is Colossians, Paul's language again reminds us of the unique status of our Lord Jesus. In Colossians 1, 12 and 13, once again, giving thanks unto the Father, Paul writes, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us, from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, Paul's reference to the kingdom of his dear son, which of course is referencing the Lord Jesus Christ, is a reminder that Jesus Christ is king. For if there is a kingdom and it belongs to Jesus, then Jesus is the king of that kingdom. In Revelation eleven fifteen through 17, we read again, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat down or sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. So the kingdoms of this, of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. What's more is that Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king. As the scriptures tell us, he is the king of all kings. Here you see the sovereign status of our Lord Jesus. This makes him unique. There is no other king of kings. There is no other Lord of lords. He is the only one who holds this status. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him of white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is sovereign in his status. There is none other as he is. And, and let me remind you as well that I've said this to you many times, that you do not make him Lord. You do not make him King. You do not make him Savior any more than you make him Creator. God has declared who he is, and he is who God declares he is, and you don't make him anything. 
We simply submit to the truth of who he is. But we don't make him king. We don't make him Lord. He is this. And that being said, we move forward to see when which Jesus holds a preeminent status. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The noun preeminence means to become, to take place, to be first. And so the, the declaration here is that Jesus is preeminent. God has raised him from the dead. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning. And God raised him from the dead that, that he might have the preeminence. It's not saying so that you might make him preeminent. Or No, God raised him from the dead. And as sure as God raised him from the dead, he is preeminent. He is first. This is not a conditional statement saying, oh, so now he's capable of having preeminence. No, he is the preeminent one. His status is that of preeminence. And there is none other beside him. So Jesus is first. Hear me again, please. You don't make him first. He's first. Now, you may not acknowledge and submit to the truth who he is, but that no, in no way changes who he is or his status or position. How man thinks he has this ability to make Jesus this or make Jesus that when God has already declared that he is. And if you fail to submit to the truth of who Christ is, that's to your hurt, but it doesn't change who he is. He is who the Father has declared him to be. This is not something you allow him to be. In other words, it is not a position that you grant him as many would say. People often will say, make Jesus first in your life. No, just submit to the fact that he is first. Submit to the truth that he is Lord. Submit to the truth that God has declared him to, God the Father has declared him to be such. So Jesus Christ is first and declared by God the Father. And this is not a man-made nor a man-given position, but this is one which the Son. As a matter of fact, I would go as far as to say this. When we fail to submit to the preeminence of Christ, it's as though we are attempting to rob Christ of the position the Father has given Him. Now, you can't literally do that, but it's as though that is what is being done. It's, it's kind of interesting, is it not? Let me digress for one moment. That people are so always concerned about quote-unquote tithes and offerings. How don't rob from God. And I know Malachi and the teaching there clearly concerning the Old Testament. But people talk about, and you'll hear people talk about tithing and giving and how people are scared to death to withhold from God uh, 10%. Which, by the way, I'll tell you, biblically, you cannot substantiate that in the New Testament. But anyway, that's what people just clung to traditionally. And so they claim about how that, you know, don't rob from God his money. Don't rob from God his offerings, his tithes. And, and don't steal from God. And we are to be giving as every man hath purposed in his heart. So let him give, the scripture says in Corinthians. But I find it very interesting that the temporal perspective is such that people think that 
to rob God of money is this great travesty. While they attempt to rob Jesus of his lordship as though it has no consequence or significance. You would be much better off to be concerned about you submitting to the lordship of Christ and everything will fall in line than you would to be worried about whether or not you give your 10% in an offering. So again, we don't make him Lord. We don't make him first. We don't make him preeminent. We don't make him king. We do not make him savior any more than we make him creator. God declared Jesus as creator. Whether you believe that or not, whether you accept that or not, is inconsequential in terms of the truth of the matter. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Whether you submit to the Lordship of Christ, whether you humble yourself before God, whether you acknowledge Jesus as first and before all and above all, makes no difference concerning who He is. Oh, it has great consequence in your life and your eternity. doesn't change the fact of who He is. In his prayer for the believers at Ephesus, Paul prayed, Ephesians 1, 18-23, the eyes of your understanding, he's praying their eyes be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20, which he, the heavenly father, wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So who put all things under his feet? God the Father. Who has placed him above all principality and all power? God the Father. Again, in Paul's hymn to Christ, I referenced this a moment ago, or what we refer to as the Carmen Christi. Paul further declared this preeminent status of Jesus Christ, which was given to him by God the Father, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore, God also... Wait, who's exalted him? Are you exalting him? God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Oh, wait a minute. Who gives him a name above every name? God the Father, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the beauty of this passage? Of course, Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death upon the cross. And God now has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. And here's the reality of it. I am fully aware and maybe so in this very position this morning that you do not acknowledge the lordship of christ you do not submit yourself humble yourself to the truth of who god has declared him to be and therefore he is but hear me very closely please one day you will every knee will bow every tongue reject and deny the truth of the preeminent status of christ and that he is unique in his preeminent status today But there is coming a moment in eternity in which men will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father because this is who God has made him to be. 
He is unique in his status. And Paul goes on to explain in verse 18 that Jesus' preeminence is recognized in three distinct manners within this verse. First of all, he says Jesus is first in his church. And he is the head of the body of the church. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and has put all things under his feet, as we've just mentioned, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Second, Paul says Jesus Christ is first in his creation, who is the beginning. In the book of Revelation, as instructed John to write to the churches, he said in Revelation 3.14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He's not saying he was the first created being. That's not what he's saying. He's for creation. He's the one who began creation. He's the one who created. Paul also stated that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Jesus declared this truth of his preeminent status in the book of the Revelation. Four times he makes this statement that he is Alpha and Omega. And it's interesting that he does so, though, once or twice in chapter 1 and once in chapter 22. And if you know anything about the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, of course, is the first chapter. Chapter 22 is the final and last chapter. And so he sandwiches... Everything in the book of Revelation between these two statements. Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Then Revelation 22.13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then third, Paul states that Jesus is first in his resurrection, and the firstborn from the dead. In his testimony to King Agrippa, Paul explained his faithfulness to the message of Christ, which he had been appointed to proclaim by saying this, Acts 26, 23, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. John explained the necessity and importance of his resurrection to his disciples in John's gospel record, John 12, 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And Jesus, of course, is speaking here of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, we know, as we just read a moment ago in Acts 26, 23, that Paul stated that Jesus should be the first that would rise from the dead. Now, if you know anything about the testimony of Scripture, then you are aware that Jesus was not the first one to die and then rise from the dead. The Old Testament... You have accounts of those uh, of being raised from the dead. In the New Testament, you have accounts, the widow of Nain's son. Remember? Lazarus, come forth. That's before the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So why would he say that he's the firstborn? Why would he say that he's the first to rise from the dead? Well, there's, there's truths here that are irrefutable and significant that we must understand and recognize. First of all, Jesus said to those during his lifetime that no one would take his life from him, but he would lay it down, and then he said, and I will pick it up again. And we know it's through the Father's power that the Son was raised, the resurrection of the dead. But we know also that because Jesus and the Father are one, he's the very Son of God, that he was raised by his own power, not by a power of another, apart from that of his Father, of course. 
Jesus raised others from the dead, and through the power of Christ or the power of God, throughout even the Old Testament, there were those who were raised from the dead. But then, more importantly, Jesus is the first to rise from the dead who did not return to the grave. So he is the firstborn among many brethren. He's the first one to have raised up from the dead of his own power and also first to rise from the dead, not to die again. For he lives forevermore. Jesus Christ holds a unique status. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. We find again, verses 5 through 11, the Carmen Christi. But then he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And you recall that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a unique Savior. And it took one being unique. The one to qualify us had to be unique in order to qualify us. In order to make us meet to be partakers, he had to be unique in his being. He had to be unique in his status. He had to be unique in his authority. For it is Christ and Christ alone by which God has granted us relationship and fellowship with him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And might I say to you, he is king, he is Lord, he is Savior, he is the mediator, he is the great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession. His life is our intercession as he's seated by the right hand of the majesty on high. He is creator, he is preeminent, he is unique. And if you don't see that, if you don't acknowledge that, if you don't recognize that, if you don't submit to that truth, At this moment, please hear me closely, and I'm finished. It does not in any way, shape, form change who he is. But I'll tell you this. When you do see him as being such, he will radically change who you are. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we are.